Welcome back to Let's Be Real. We are jumping into our last week of Jonah this week, chapter four. So glad you're here. Okay, so I'm a little sad that Jonah is coming to an end. I've had so much fun learning so much about this book that, you know, I knew the story. I know where it is in the Bible, but you don't often land in Jonah and sit there very long. So this has been a lot of fun for me. It's been a lot of fun just learning and seeing these themes in the book of Jonah. Remember, we're trying to look at the book of Jonah through the eyes of an adult, not just as a child story where we hear the big themes. The kids can understand like the big picture, I think, right? The rough storyline. But as adults, we've seen themes of religious hypocrisy, spiritual apathy and the devastating effects that that can have on us and other people, the ways that God can use pain and suffering in our lives as a severe mercy to wake us up, to draw us closer to him. We have seen divine judgment and divine repentance. All of these themes, these are very much adult themes for us to understand, right? The purpose of all scripture isn't necessarily to entertain children, right? But it's aimed at revealing God's character to his people, to reveal who God is, what he's up to, and his purposes in the world. So that's how we really need to attack scripture and come to it and learn to see God's character and who he is. It's not necessarily for entertainment. It is an opportunity to just look deeper into the heart of God and who he is. So we're finishing up with chapter four, where we see Jonah sitting hot in sunburn. He's like outside on the east side of Nineveh, wanting to die rather than to live with a God like Yahweh. I mean, Jonah's a prophet. He comes into Nineveh. He is wildly successful with a very short sermon, which would be great for a prophet's resume, right? Like You'd be like, yep, five words, five Hebrew words. Whole nation repented. Look at how effective of a prophet I am. But instead of being super thrilled, he is super upset. He is ticked and he is sitting outside the city watching and waiting to see what's going to happen. Chapter four. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, 
in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. So here we have Jonah. He's angry. Oh, dear Jonah. And he's praying to Yahweh. He is like having a venting prayer. If you had one of those before, he is letting God have it. He's like, isn't this what I said? Like, I told you, I knew this is what was going to happen. So just take away my life. It would be better for me to die than to live. Like, oh, Jonah. Verse 2 of chapter 4 says, This is why I made haste to flee from Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, for an ancient Hebrew, this would be like a super common, famous verse kind of used in the Old Testament. They would know this one. It's kind of like our John 3.16 in the New Testament, right? Like this verse, those words, gracious, compassionate, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, that verse is repeated over 12 times in the Old Testament. So it is very popular. He's actually quoting Exodus 34.6. And he's quoting a verse that God is actually saying about himself. So they're sitting at Mount Sinai. God reveals the Ten Commandments. Number one, no other gods before me. Number two, make no idols. What did the Israelites do? They make idols. <laughs> like, well, that didn't work very well. God is like, all right, you know what? I'm going to destroy my people. Forget it. This isn't working. Moses intercedes. He's like, wait, wait, wait. And God relents. Moses says, why? And God replies. He says, I am gracious. I am compassionate. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love. He's talking about himself. So here we actually see Jonah taking God's actual words and just throwing them back in his face. I knew you were like this. You have been since day one. (laughs) Like, I knew it. The irony here is Jonah actually wouldn't even exist as an Israelite if God wasn't like this. Like, if he hadn't saved his people, if he hadn't made a people unto himself. So Jonah, he's just super angry, right? To the point where he's completely irrational at this point. He's like, I knew it. You love to forgive people who don't deserve it. You like to do this stuff. This is why I ran. You made me come here, and I didn't even want to. Jonah 4, he is losing it, and he's mad at God for being too nice. (laughs) Uh, Jonah actually seems very ridiculous and laughable when we're looking at him. I think we can empathize a little bit. Sometimes we're like, oh, you're being too nice. We'd like to cast that judgment. What we get to see when we look back at this is just the, I've heard it say it, the scandal or the dark side of God's grace and mercy is the liberality of his grace and the wideness of his mercy. We come to the Lord to receive his grace and his mercy, and we're humbled by him, and we love him, and we're in his presence. But then, you know, there are other people in our life that we might really despise or have really hurt us, and you kind of give them the side eye when you look over at them. Like, well, they don't deserve it. Do you know what they did to me? I think we can probably comprehend the anger and the motivation for Jonah's anger with God. If we were in the same situation, we might even say the same thing. 
I've heard it said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all get to be there. His mercy is wide and his grace is deep. It's great for us. We love having it. But then we're like, "Mm, but those people over there, are you sure, God? So back in 2006, there was a Amish schoolhouse shooting. I don't know if you guys remember this. There's a very difficult movie to watch on this on Netflix. I think it's called Amazing Grace. But the milkman for a small community, I believe it was in Pennsylvania (laughs) or Ohio. One of them, doesn't much matter. The milkman goes to the school and he takes hostages. He puts every all the girls in the school. He shoots 10, I think seven die. Some of the boys get away with a mom or a parent that was there helping and they run for help. I think he chases them down. Like it's just this horror story of this small peaceful community. On that same day of the shooting and the killing of these girls, the grandfather of one of the girls who died goes to the home of the parents of the shooter. He consoles the parents. It's said that he hugged the mother and held her for an hour as she sobbed. They came to offer their forgiveness. Immediately after this happened, the Amish set up a fund for his children and his widow. They fundraised to help continue to support them. After the funeral and the comments and the witness and the testimony from the family and from the widow said, we have never experienced such forgiveness and love and grace as we did in the wake of this. From this community, from these people that chose immediate forgiveness for someone that did such great and wicked harm. Their commitment was to Jesus. It was to forgive their enemies. And the influence from that has changed lives. This is a picture of scandalous grace and mercy that is so wide that it includes the people that you hate or despise, that wronged you, that did evil to you. This is where grace becomes disturbing and amazing. What would we do in that situation? I can honestly say I have no idea. We see God step in to this relationship with Jonah, and he goes to him three times to bring Jonah along to help him understand his grace in this new, big, broad way. In verse 4, God tries first, and he asks a question. Do you do well to be angry? He's asking, is your anger legitimate? (laughs) And you know Jonah's response to this one? It kind of cracks me up. He stonewalls God. He ignores him. He doesn't even answer him. I envision Jonah like giving him the hand, looking away, and just he walks out of the city. He heads east. He goes and he makes himself a shelter, and he's just waiting to see what would happen. Jonah ignores God altogether. Mm, This isn't the first time we've seen him do this before, right? He doesn't want to hear it. So this first try, God's like, hey, Jonah, really? Like, he's talking about grace. Not working. He walks out. He makes a shelter. What do you think Jonah is waiting for? He is headed out. He's made a shelter. He's camping out. And he's waiting. 
probably doesn't sound like he's waiting for something good to happen, right? We kind of know in the mind of Jonah, we've seen his character enough to, we know what he wants to happen. He does not want these people saved. He's probably like waiting for fire and brimstone, like a whole Sodom and Gomorrah event. Like I'm waiting to see these people burn. I mean, guessing, but I think it's probably a fair guess. Jonah is pretty upset with God right now, right? God has played a trick on him. I want us to go back to look at chapter 3. In verse 4, we see Jonah's quick little sermon. So Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Remember, we talked about how odd his short sermon is. He doesn't mention their wickedness that God has asked him to call on and show them in chapter 1. He doesn't even mention God, Yahweh, right? He doesn't even say why this is happening. I mean, this gets better. We kind of talked about that last week, this odd sermon, right? In chapter 3, verse 4, there's a couple different words that we typically see in English. It says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Sometimes the word is overturned. So we have words in English that have basic meanings with nuances behind it that we need context to understand what that word is saying. So for example, the word destroyed. Like, oh, I destroyed my car. That's probably, right? We could understand that as a crash, a car accident. If someone were to say, yeah, she totally destroyed that record or that competition or the score, we see that as a good thing, right? Like, It's this huge achievement that you won by a large amount. Like, you destroyed it. You went way beyond. If I were to say, oh, yes, we destroyed that cheesecake. (laughs) Like, we enjoyed it. We ate it all fast. Like, it was gone instantly. We understand that we're destroyed in multiple different ways based on its context. So the word that we see in the sermon, overturned or overthrown, in Hebrew is the word hapak. The basic meaning of hapak is to turn it over. We see this word used throughout scripture in a number of different ways. So we see hapak used in Hosea 7, 8. Israel is like baked bread that has not been hapak. It has not been turned over. It's not necessarily a good thing. It's ruined. It didn't get flipped. It's burnt. It didn't get turned over. We see hapak used again in Lamentations Four six, the sin of my people is greater than that of Sodom, which was hapak in a moment without a hand of help. So which was overturned. This is negative, right? The city, his people are being taken over in a moment. So it's kind of like this overthrown, it's destroyed. We see hapak again in a little bit more of a positive light in Psalm 33, 10. God, you have hapak my grief and mourning into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. This is changed. This is transformed. God, you have transformed my grief and mourning into dancing. We see hapak used in a handful of ways here. Turn something over like bread, overthrow or destroy, idea of being destroyed or overtaken. And then we also see hapak as this change and this transformed, this new direction. Which of those do you think... Jonah was intending for Nineveh as he gave his his long sermon. Probably not the change transformed part, right? (laughs) Or to physically just turn them over. Most likely he's intending, you're going to be overthrown. You're going to be destroyed. Nineveh, you're going to be hapak. Which meaning do you think God intends? 
and which one has clearly happened. Okay, this is funny. This is funny. Play on words, right? The Hebrews would get this. God is using this changed, this transformed idea, like they're going to repent and they're going to hapak. <laughs> Jonah doesn't think it's funny at all. He is angry. God isn't letting Jonah get away with anything here. Jonah tries to run away, and he's like, no. He tries to maybe sermon sabotage. He's like, no. This idea of hapak is very common throughout the prophets. And is this picture of, hey, if you're walking one way down the road, right? They've painted this picture all throughout the prophets of our relationship with God, the Israelite people, on this journey, on this path. And if you're walking in one way and you're walking further away from God and from his commands, the prophet's calling them to hapak, stop, turn, and come back. So it was this very literal picture for them of somebody turning physically and going back the other way. And then we see hapak used in all of these different examples. Jonah is livid. What he intended for bad, God is going to use for good. Jonah's sitting outside the city. He's waiting for something bad to happen, and God is going to engage him a second time. Remember the first time the question didn't work. Jonah just kind of stonewalled him. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it was withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to live than die. But God said to Jonah, here's attempt number two. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? So God's like, all right, I'm going to try a new tactic. I'm going to try the small plant tactic here. We've got a new technique. But Jonah is so angry. He wants to die. He's like down in the dumps. But then Jonah's extremely happy about the plant. Okay, it's these pictures of like extremely upset, extremely happy. This is the first time I think we see Jonah happy in the whole book, right? He has this plant to provide shade. And then at dawn, God provides a tiny worm, scorching east wind. And now Jonah's like, ugh, I'm back down. I want to die again. It's comic. It's this up and down. Like I'm good. And then everything, it's the worst in the world. And I'm happy. And then it's horrible. Have you ever taken a toddler to the checkout aisle at the grocery store? It's sort of like that, right? Where you get to the checkout aisle and you look and they're in the cart and they're sitting there and they're like, look at all the candy. Like they're in this place of euphoria, like, ta-da, I want that. And I want that. And I want that. And they might even be grabbing stuff, right? They have this moment of pure joy and excitement and being so happy and thrilled because of what they think they have. And then you're like, no, honey, not today. And you take it out of their little hands and you put it back. And what happens? Melt down, like total meltdown. It's this extreme high to just angry chaos low. This is what I'm picturing here with Jonah. I even kind of picture this whole scenario like uh, trick-or-treating here in the state of Wisconsin because it can be like, yay, the kids are super excited. We're trick-or-treating. But then it's freezing cold out. So while they're walking from place to place, it's like, uh, uh, are we done? Are we done? And then they run to another house and they're like, oh, more candy. And then they walk maybe too far to the next house. They're like, can we be done? I'm so cold. Sometimes it's rainy too. So now they're cold and wet. But then they're like, 
oh, wait, more candy. And then they come home and they dump it all out. My kids like to sort and organize their candy. I hope other people's kids do that too. And then they're like in this place of like, yay, look at all the candy. And then you're like, yes, but you only get to eat about 10 pieces tonight and we're going to save the rest for later. And then they're like, boo, super angry. And if you're like me, you make sure to hide a vast majority of that candy because then you save it long enough to fill their stockings at Christmas. (laughs) It is called, mm, (laughs) I don't know, (laughs) I don't know, sneaky, maybe. that's. I was going to try to put a positive spin on it. I think it's a positive thing, but it's a little sneaky. Anyway, moving on. So verse 9, we see God, he's repeating his question, right, with this twist about the plant. Is your anger legitimate like do you really have a right to be angry here and Jonah's like yes of course it's right for me to be angry I want to die like Jonah drama queen right here he is beyond reason he is just angry and can't let it go God is committed he doesn't give up why because he's gracious because he's compassionate he's slow to anger abounding in steadfast loving kindness So now we have a third try. God's like, hey, you've had all of this emotion about the plant. You have an emotional attachment somehow to this plant that you didn't do anything to. You didn't tend it. You didn't plant it. It's only been in your life a day. It came up at night. It was gone. Like you have so much of an attachment to this thing that brought you comfort and joy or peace, but you didn't do anything for it. And if you say that your concern about this plant that you did nothing for is legitimate, shouldn't I, Yahweh, be able to have that same emotion and concern over something a bit more significant? Like, let's say, a giant city full of people, over 120,000 people, who can't tell their right hand from their left, and not to mention their animals. Okay, And the end. (laughs) That's how chapter four ends. God asking Jonah this question. Like, can I not then care about something real big, all these people and their animals? It's so strange, (laughs) this ending, but pretty brilliant. So this first try, God is trying to expose how foolish it is for Jonah to be angry for him showing grace to the Ninevites. Well, that one didn't work, right? So the second try... He's trying to expose Jonah's anger by using the plant. (laughs) Well, that didn't work. Now, this third try, we see Jonah for the first time being happy about something, the plant and its shade. It brings him benefit and pleasure. It's the first thing outside of himself that we actually see Jonah care about. And God's like, okay, okay, I can work with that, (laughs) right? You have a soft spot. You have emotion and care for this plant will grant you legitimacy for your attachment to the plant, okay? God's like, okay, okay, it's important to you. It's, it's a good thing. Fine, let's, let's work there. So Jonah, wouldn't it be okay if I had a strong emotional attachment or concern or something for other than myself, kind of like you're doing right now? And maybe you could grant me something a little more important. <laughs> like these human beings... We're all made in my image. There are these people who are described as not knowing their right hand from their left. This is a pretty interesting Hebrew turn of phrase here. It can't be that they don't know right from wrong. A lot of times I think when we hear that, that's what we assume. But God clearly expects that they do know their right from wrong when he casts judgment on their behavior and they respond accordingly, right? Because 
he knows that they should have known better. So when he casts this very brief judgment through Jonah, they repent because they are able to be like, oh, you mean what I was doing was wrong. This idea of not knowing the right hand from their left, it seems to be sort of an idiom that they're misguided, that they're lost, both spiritually and morally. We should go this way to the right, but they go the other direction. We should do this thing, but we choose the opposite. It's a common description that we see throughout scripture of human beings, right? Sheep, you stupid, lost sheep. Now, God's not excusing the Ninevites. He's saying they didn't know better. They will be held accountable, but they're lost and they're misguided. And this is where their injustice comes from. Jonah, you're all worked up about your little deal and your plant. Okay, fine. But can't you see that I might be worked up about thousands of humans and their pets? <laughs> that, that's always funny. So what is Jonah 4 actually telling us? What is, what's it doing to us? How did Jonah respond? I want to know what he said, but I think we could probably guess. But if we're focused so much on his response, it might, make us, it might make us miss the whole point of the whole book. The story really wasn't all about Jonah anyway, was it? What was the story actually about? It was God and his Israelite people. It's about you and me. The real question really should be taken at the end of this book is, how am I living in response to God's question? Jonah is this ridiculous caricature of a people who grasp the scandal of God's grace and that God loves your enemy as much as he loves you. When this all settles in, especially after someone hurts you, this chapter can kind of hurt. It packs a little bit of a punch. Like, yeah, I don't really feel that way. (laughs) I don't really know always that I see these people that have hurt me on an equal playing field as me and deserving God's grace. God is trying to get Jonah outside of himself. I mean, Jonah, he clearly thinks that the Ninevites are like the worst sinners ever, right? Yet in this story, who is the most hateful, hard-hearted person? It's Jonah. God is gently trying to get Jonah to see what's happening here. That you, Jonah, are indeed a member of God's covenant people. But that doesn't for a second excuse your religious hypocrisy and your superiority. You are just as lost and broken and misguided as they are. Don't you see that, Jonah? Shouldn't I be concerned about them? And this really kind of opens up this this theme of chapter 4, that God loves your enemy. He does. We can think about this and be okay with it. We can get on board with it. Yes, God loves my enemy. I understand. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He loves everybody. He loves my enemy. That's fine. That's good. But please don't expect me to. (laughs) Oh, this is a core fundamental premise of the gospel. Forgiveness of one's enemy. This is what God is doing for us at the cross. Jesus talked about this stuff all the time. You see it in Luke 6, 27 and 28. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. This can be tough. We can think, yeah, God, you do that, but I'm, I'm taking a pass. <laughs> no thanks, not gonna at least not today and not for a while. I, can't, I just can't. I am not ready. 
This is his announcement of the kingdom of God in him, in Luke. This is what we're seeing. There's a whole new way of living in God's world, and I have arrived. In him and Jesus, people are reconciled to God. We're people who have made ourselves enemy of God through our own self-absorption and selfishness, thinking that we are the star of the show and God is just a player in our own story, along with everybody else, where some of us are train wrecks and others are quite proud that they aren't affecting others along the way, right? Like this religious pride. We all do this in one way or another. We hear this and we think, nah, it really doesn't work that way in real life. Jesus says, no, no, you have it upside down. This is how God made us to live, fully reconciled to God and other people. Loving your enemies, doing good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. But you don't have to do it alone. We do this because God is like this already, right? He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, who loves to relent from sending calamity. And we see that in the example of our own lives. The book ends with Jonah having no high ground to stand on or to start declaring who deserves God's grace and who doesn't. The mass of this world, all the wrongs that have happened, it ends at the cross. And the community of people who live around the cross, us believers, we're called to live differently. And not because we think that we're better but because we've been shown grace and compassion, treated by a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah 4 and Jesus deconstruct the idea of what an enemy is. You can see what Jonah is thinking about the Ninevites, that they're clearly demonized. They're the bad guys. Like, this is how he's thinking about them. And yet they're the ones with the soft hearts that turn to God immediately. Jonah's the bad guy. Jonah's the one struggling here with the hard heart, but he can't even see it. And this is what happens to us with our enemies. Let that one sink in. Someone who has wronged us or somebody that we love, they might even have a toxic personality or they're annoying to be around. I mean, they can be, but there might be someone in your life that you just can't deal. It's really hard. You know, it's okay. It's okay to struggle to be around someone. But the issue is what you do with that repulsion or those emotions. What do you do with that? Most of us fixate on the things that they've done to us. And we reduce their complex humanity, right? Their family, their origins, the, the things that, that have been done to them, their personal story. We shrink that down and wrap it all up in the thing that they did to us. Someone lied about you. All of a sudden they're like, yeah, they're a liar. The picture in our head about them, it's not pretty. We've reduced their humanity to that image and that label that we made. Liar. Not even thinking about any other part of their being, their personhood, who they are, that God's created them in his image as well. And because we were the ones wronged by what they did and what the label of them we have, we tend to paint ourselves as the very opposite of them. We kind of put ourselves up a little higher by default. This is what we get in Jonah 4. Jonah is so blind to the line of good and evil that is running right through the center of him. He thinks everyone else is the problem. We are all contributors to why this world is the way that it is, every one of us. 
Some people are screwed up in more different ways than others, but that line of good and evil, it goes right through each of us. We have all made ourselves enemy of God at some point, and that is the point of the cross. If we hadn't, we wouldn't need the cross. We stand before the cross, and we receive it, and we take in the grace, and we have the audacity to look around and be like, ooh, yeah, but not them. Or God, are you sure about that one? Like, "Uh, no, not over there. The gospel is liberal grace and wide mercy for all who come. This story of Jonah is about God and his own people. He's trying to open their eyes and their hearts to how messed up they are and that they need his grace as much as everyone else. God brings Jonah into contact with his enemy on purpose just to teach him something. Think of that in your own life. Can you think of someone? Can you think of somebody that you're like, ooh, I would not want to run into them right now or I just can't talk to them yet? Or somebody in the past who have really done you wrong. Could it be that that person is in your life as a divine invitation to grow and mature in your experience of God's grace? Not just in receiving his grace, but to begin by showing it to someone else. Not just mentally assenting to it, right? But letting it flow through you and getting it put into action. Could this be the next step of growth for you? Are you going to be like Jonah? The first step of loving our enemy is to recognize our common humanity and the brokenness that we share. God is asking Jonah, shouldn't I care about the misguided Ninevites like you too, the same way I'm committed to you? Could it be that these people that you struggle with or have a hard time with, could it be that they're in our lives precisely because God is inviting us into a deeper experience of his grace by allowing us to show it to somebody else? This is a challenging, difficult, raw, real lesson. God, we come before you today thanking you for the picture and the story of Jonah. God, as much as we don't always like it, we thank you for the mirror that this book has held up to ourselves, for the questions and the challenges that we need to wrestle with in our journey, in our walk, our relationship with you, and in our relationships with others. Lord, help us to point people to the cross. Help us to show grace because you did first to love our enemies, to pray for those who hurt us. God, help us to experience richness in the depth of your grace. We will absolutely need your help in this. In this temporal, emotional life, it can be so difficult, God, to offer grace and forgiveness and truly mean it and truly mean it and to walk away with a soft, tender heart, one that's compassionate, one that's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We know, God, that that is you and that you can work through us. Help us to be open to that and not blind to it or to refuse it altogether, but to grow in the deepness and the richness of your grace. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen.